Good morning. Our central text this morning comes from Matthew 6, 9 through 10, and Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as you, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch me with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Kimberly was just doing a mic drop. Y'all didn't get that. <laughs> uh, good morning. My name's Chaz, and I'm one of the pastors. And uh, let's pray, because we have probably what is one of the hardest passages in this whole series. So, um, Lord, your will be done. Lord, when we pray that, there are a million fists up in our heart, it feels like, to fight against that. This is a hard pray to prayer to pray. And we want to just daylight that, that this is really, we struggle to pray this, Lord, and we can't do it without your help, uh, your word, <laughs> and one another. And Lord, I just ask, uh, not only for your will to be done, but Lord, I ask that our hearts and minds would really be taken up this morning with the emotional duress and distress that maybe we've never realized how intense it really was as you prayed, your will be done and blood is coming out of your pores. Help us to understand why that was so challenged for you. And Lord, I do pray that you would make us into church that collectively we can help one another do this because we can't even pray this prayer by ourselves. We don't have the courage to do that. So I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's this time of year where we get these stories, and I'm sorry the image is a little grainy, but like, it's literally like once every other week. I saw this on the national news just last week. We get these stories of pets stuck in the water, and here's Bob the dog from Utah. He was apparently doing some polar plunges that morning and cold plunges. Uh, got stuck in that. Uh, dogs love water, but that's a little bit cold, and he got stuck in the ice shelf, so uh, you know, what did people do? They call the fire department. Right? It's a lot easier the dog than a cat if you've ever seen a cat be rescued on the ice. I feel so bad for those firemen. But anyway, you know, Bob's stuck in there. And if you've seen the video, you can hear somebody say, don't worry, Bob, he's going to save you. Now, why did they need to say that to Bob? Because Bob was clearly hostile. He's growling. And here comes a man uh, dressed like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, only yellow, coming after him. Now, what do you think is going through Bob's mind? It wasn't, here comes a scary man, your will be done though. I yield and submit to you. No, 
He tried to bite this man's face off, literally. And thankfully, he was able to rescue the dog, and with a big shake, he went back to his owners. And I'm sure Bob and the firefighter are on good terms now, but a harrowing situation for a moment. We're in a series right now titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, and these are the words that Jesus' disciples said to Jesus when they saw him pray. They said, teach us how to pray. We don't really know how to do it. And if you've been here in the series, what we've been doing is we've been going line by line through the Lord's Prayer different aspects of it, and I alluded to it when I just prayed, praying this part of the Lord's Prayer is the hardest part. Think about it. Your will be done is literally one of the hardest prayers because like Bob, sometimes we find ourselves in deep distress, and we don't want to pray your will be done. We don't know, we can't see the way out, and we certainly, our divine rescuer comes to in our lives, and we want to bite his face off. But this is a prayer that Jesus himself literally prayed in his deepest distress, and that was for our divine rescue. So what does it mean to really, let's be thoughtful this morning, what does it mean for us to really pray, your will be done? Why is it so important, and what will give us the power to do it? Because it's really hard to do if we're being honest. And so let's take a look. Praying your will be done in distress. It's a hard thing to do in distress. It's also a hard thing to do when life is going really well. (laughs) But two, when praying your will be done is distressing when it brings distress itself, and then lastly, learning how to pray your will be done. So let's just walk right through the passage. And, um, you know, this passage, and we're told Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, John calls it a garden. Uh, It appears three different times. It's in Mark, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke. John doesn't record it, but he alludes to Gethsemane and calls it a garden. But what is this place? Really, it's the Mount of Olives. And I don't know why this picture didn't, it looks more like a painting up here now, but it's a real picture. It just looks different from up here. But as you can tell, I mean, the Mount of Olives is really just a hill. Uh, in fact, I think Luke says, as it was their custom, this is where the disciples went. And what's literally right over there with a stone's throw? It's the old city. It's Jerusalem. Okay, so all this is going on. But if you can imagine, think about all that's going to happen to Jesus over here in the city within just days. In fact, not even in the city, his his betrayers are coming right here now within just mere moments to come get him. But what a contrast. I mean, (laughs) it's this beautiful setting, isn't it? Idyllic. I mean, there's Olive Grove. And in fact, the word Gethsemane, really what it was, was just a walled-off area where they would press the olives. The word Gethsemane literally means olive press, which is so ironic It's this beautiful setting, peaceful, serene, garden-like, and yet Jesus is feeling pressed like an olive at this moment. He's being pressed out. Every bit of everything he has in him is coming out of him. And, and, you know, one of the challenges is, and Greek is hard to translate into English, and, and they do a great job, but You know, there's just limits to it. There's a veil between English translations and Greek translations. And so while these are very vivid descriptions, Jesus, you know, in the English, it says he's sorrow and troubled and even, hey, I'm sorrowful even unto death. That's descriptive. It's very descriptive. But I want us to take a look at the very Greek words that are used here. I'm not going to show them up here, but I'll just go one by one. The first Greek word that we see here is the word lipeo, and it's the word we see for sorrow. But what the Greek translation literally says is that Jesus, literally what it means is he was thrown into sorrow. 
Uh, what that literally means is, is, for example, how many of us have been on a roller coaster and you are thrown into, your stomach is thrown into your heart, right? You're thrown into it. The, the feeling of free fall and G-force, it's, it's totally out of our control. Uh, there's just a sense of when you and I have ever had to pick up the phone and on the other end we're learning traumatic news, almost immediately our bodies are thrown into something, isn't it? We have no control over it. We're just immediately, it's like we're in a free fall. We're just filled with sorrow. It's like we cannot get ourselves out, like we've fallen into a pit and we have no help. And Luke, in the, uh, the same account, he says Jesus was bleeding out of his pores. So Jesus is clearly a man in distress, in this moment. Now, the second word is the Greek word admoneo, and it's the word troubled. And literally, it's the only Greek word we have in all the New Testament that is the word depression. So Jesus has fallen into this traumatic sense of sorrow, that just gut punch that feels horrible, like you're having an out-of-body experience. And on top of that, he's fallen into a depression that feels like he's walking through the shadowlands of hell itself. It's like he's stuck in a pond of depression and and cannot get over it. And these are really powerful. But, you know, this word here, I'm sorrowful even to death, it's the Greek word perilapos. And literally, it literally means overcome with sorrow so much as to cause one's death. You know, there's a specific term, takitsubo cardiomyopathy. Okay, I had to use YouTube how to pronounce. If you've ever done that before, I had to just do it like 10 minutes ago again. Just like, did I get that right? Takitsubo cardiomyopathy. Do you know what that means? Broken heart syndrome. Broken heart syndrome. It's literally something that happens. It's a medical condition. Some of you maybe heard of it or heard of it. When the muscles get weakened of the heart, and, and it can take people months to recover, but sometimes they die. Several years ago, I was, uh, there was a family in our church before they moved and they got that call. Trauma. Their son, late 40s, early 50s, great bill of health, died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And those were just brutal days. Brutal days. And I remember being with them in their house. And just a few days after he, his son had died, I remember the father saying, I'm really worried about my daughter-in-law. I'm really concerned for her. Like, our boy was her world. I don't know what she's going to do the rest of her life. I don't know how she's going to revive. And I'll never forget, you know, they were down at a funeral that was out of state, so I wasn't there. But he, he texted me the next morning after the funeral. She died that night. Broken heart syndrome. Real thing. She was in her mid-40s. I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus was going through because Matthew was writing 2,000 years ago. But, but literally... Jesus experiencing a painful, emotional distress that is breaking his heart into a million pieces. Jesus is falling apart here. It is breaking his heart. And we were told it would be like this. 
Because there's all these things that scholars point to and say, these are the things that point to Jesus. They're called Messianic Psalms. But Psalm 22 is one of them. And look at all the things it says about Jesus. It's, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melting within my breast. Seems to find that description. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Praying your will be done is one of the hardest things to do when we're in pain like that. Because when we're in pain, we're just grasping for relief. We're not thinking about will be done. I just get me out of this ice water. Get me out of this hellish experience. When we're in pain like this, it's really hard to literally, if you've ever been in this kind of despair, it's hard to think straight. We can't find the words to even pray. And this is easy overlooked in this passage because, frankly, his friends fail miserably. But I don't think we should ever overlook the fact that here is Jesus Christ. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's the son of God. And he's in his deepest moment of despair. And he has to go out into this olive press area. And he has to pray a prayer only he can pray. He has to pray a prayer by himself for this moment. But you know who's right there near him? His friends. He asks his friends to be with him in this hard moment. They're within earshot. James, John, and Peter. There's the same people Jesus invited up to be on a mountain and to see his glory and this mountaintop experience. But now Jesus Christ, the son of God, what is he doing? He's inviting his friends to be laid low in the dust with him and to be sure they absolutely fail. But Jesus is saying, I can't do it alone. This is the son of God asking for humans to be around him in order to keep praying this hard prayer. In fact, Luke, it's one of my favorite little gems that you'll find in the Gospels. It even says in Luke that there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And in being agony, what did he do? <laughs> this angel comes and all of a sudden Jesus Christ is able to pray more earnestly. And his sweat became like blood, drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus needed help. He needed his friends. He needed supernatural help. There is no way you and I can pray this prayer without others. Because right now, if you're really suffering, you, you, you don't have the words. And some of you have been there where you just, you literally can't even pray. But others can do that for you, can't they? They can come right alongside you and pray the words that you don't even have yet. They might be the words you have three to five years from now when you've processed all your trauma, but you don't have them today, but they have them for you. And they're there with you. And also, here's the other thing, brutally honest with you. I struggle to pray this prayer, particularly when things are going the best in my life. And I don't have the courage to pray your will be done when things are going really well in my life because I want to hold on to things that have to do with my will being done. And without the help of others calling me to pray that prayer, I cannot do it. And neither can you. So what does it mean, praying your will be done? Let's be honest that sometimes it can feel distressing. You know, 
if you're following, I know there's been a few distractions this morning, okay? But some of the startling features of this passage is if you read church history, if you read history across the world, wars, brave soldiers, you know, martyrs who, who literally just f- being burned at the stake, being burned alive, you read these stories and descriptions, and wh- what do we see? They're, they're unflinching. There have been so many people who have faced death far braver than what we're finding here in the Garden of Gethsemane. So many people are like, bring it. I got this. Stand tall. Be of courage. But not Jesus. He's falling apart. There have been many of his followers who've died more brave than he did. What's going on? And for another thing, what is with this question? I mean, Jesus Christ knew why he came to earth. <laughs> I've come to earth to suffer. I mean, it was when he told his disciples, the son of man's going to suffer. And Peter comes up and rebukes him for saying that. And he says to Peter, what? Get thee behind me, Satan. Because I came here to suffer. I, I know the deal. But then why? <laughs> why is Jesus come to the Father, and at first thing he says is, if it be possible, let this cup pass through me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Why is he saying that? You know, there have been several memorable sermons I've heard through the years, but there is one in particular that I have never forgot. This was like 97, 98. I was a brand new Christian, and um, you know, I lived in my fraternity house. I used to invite fraternity brothers to church all the time, and they would never take me up on that offer, okay? A uh, few came hung over a couple of times, but this was Easter, so I had a little better audience. And so I invited some guys, and one guy came with me. And I remember sitting down and just listening to this pastor. And just keep in mind, this is, this is like before Google was really effective. This was like not really a thing at that point. So I don't know where he got all this info. Maybe he got it from a medical doctor in his church. I don't know. But I'm, I'm telling you, for 40 minutes, he was going through every medical description that everything Jesus went through, like explaining it. The head blows and medically talking about what was happening and his neural transmitters and this, that, and the other. And then, of course, the nails and through his wrists and through his feet and the pain and going through ligaments and bone and muscle tear. Then the sunburn. I mean, we don't even think about that. That's right. He would have been burned by the sun all day. Birds were kind of trying to pluck his eyes out. The thorns on his head and how much blood. And then, of course, just the beatings, the blood loss, the blood loss. But the thing that really got me was, wow, I didn't know this, that he essentially died from suffocation. And he would have to lift himself up just to breathe and then hurt himself to even do that. And you know what? About 20 years ago, this same sentiment came out. You might know what movie I'm talking about. 20 years ago, The Passion of the Christ came out. And over and over again, the common sentiment was this. What? You need to see this movie. You know why? Because now you will finally understand all that Jesus went through and did for you. And I don't want to make light of any of that. That's brutal. It's very effective and it's very humbling. But Matthew is telling us this is not what Jesus was torn up about. 
He's not torn up about this right now. The only way to understand this is, is to go back, and I know it's been a lot of Greek this morning, but I want to revisit that Greek, that last Greek word, sorrow unto death. Cardiosuk, whatever, talking pseudo cardiomyopathy, heart broken syndrome. It only appears really only one other place in the New Testament. You know where it appears? Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Jesus looks at this really well-resourced man who has a lot of stuff, and he's a very morally upright guy, and he's young, and the world is working for him. But he tells him the most unfathomable thing, which is not prescriptive, but he tells him to him, you lack one thing, sell everything, and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became, there it is, perilapos, right? Sad. He became heartbroken. And I'm not saying he was dying of a broken heart, but I think what, what it does mean is perhaps had he actually sold everything, it might have killed him. Because what was happening is the thing he loved most was something he couldn't part with. But when Jesus goes to this olive press and his soul is being pressed and the contrast between the outer beauty and the inner world are, couldn't be worlds apart. He comes and he gets on his knees. And he does what the rich young ruler couldn't do. He prayed, your will be done. Jesus was willing to part with what he loved most. His greatest treasure. And it was breaking his heart into a thousand million pieces. The question is, what would it be? And it's this. Jesus Christ has for all eternity always been an intimate love relationship with his heavenly father, and that is all he's ever known. He wouldn't know one millisecond what it would be like not to be in that presence. And he knew when he'd go to the cross that was not going to be there. But then there's another thing. There's this word cup, and we're like, what does that mean? Every allusion to that in the Old Testament always speaks of the wrath of God, justice against sin. Justice coming to injustice. So when Jesus is falling apart, because he's going to lose everything, in a sense, it's hard to really explain and feel like you're getting heretical talking about it. But the wrath of God is coming out. The only way I can explain this is, I want you to take a quick moment, and I want you to imagine something you do think about from time to time, and it's this. All of us have this fear, don't we? There is this irrational fear that every single one of this room do have, that sometimes we think to ourselves, what if I really, really, I mean, really screw it up, and I, I do this? And all of a sudden, everybody in my life, I mean everybody that I love, that my spouse, my friends, my family, my church, my kids, my parents, my coworkers, everybody all at once, not only turns their love away from me, but now hates me in a sense. Like what if everybody you love, that you count on, that you need in your life, that is your everything in your world, and they don't just turn their love away, but they turn against you. And they, when they see you in the grocery store, they don't just walk the other way, they, they shake their heads at you. That is a hard thought. And you know, if that ever happened, you know what that means? You're all alone. It's just you now in this world. 
You are all alone and despised. That is a horrible thought. Now take that thought and multiply it by an affinity. And then you and I might have a sense of what Jesus Christ was asking. May this cup pass from me. Because in a sense, that is really hard to explain. What we are told is that Jesus Christ, and as we see it in Romans 8, 1, the reason we are believers are not condemned because we're told sin was what was condemned on the cross. But that sin was put on Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just sin. Jesus experienced the condemnation of sin. The word cup, as I just said, is punishment for sin. And it all felt on Jesus. Jesus prayed, your will be done. And the worst thing that could ever happen to him did happen to him. That's what we fear. We don't want to pray that prayer because we're like, well, what if the worst happens? It did happen to him. The worst possible thing happened to him, which is essentially innumerable hells, fell on Jesus Christ while he was on the cross. I don't need to wait to point three to preach the gospel to you because that is the gospel, friends. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. That your Savior, Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, he went out in a garden, got on his knees, falling apart, and he said, your will be done. So that if we ever pray like this, that will never happen to you and I. And here's the other thing. Then I think it begs a very thoughtful question. Then why am I so scared to pray this prayer? I'll say this. If you and I are reluctant to pray, your will be done. It can't be for the same reasons Jesus was reluctant. Because that can't happen to you and I. So it begs the question then. Why do we struggle to do this? Why is it so hard? Because I think like the rich young ruler, there are things in our lives that we love more than God that we're afraid to really pray this prayer for. I mean, I'll just be really honest. There are idols in my life right now. I know I'm supposed to, pastor's supposed to speak in the past tense, like back way in the day, you know, before I met Jesus, but baloney, whatever. <laughs> No, it's today. I have things in my life that I love more than Jesus going on in my life that I do not want to let go of, and I don't oftentimes want to pray this prayer because I don't want him to take those away from me, i.e. Gator football, one of them, big time. And I should know better. It's been bad for 16 years now. Why does that not (laughs) work for me? This is why we need others to have the courage to pray this prayer. C.S. Lewis very bluntly uh, said it this way. He said, the terrible thing The most impossible thing is to hand over your whole self. We just sang a song like that. All our wishes and precautions to Christ, but it is far easier than we are all trying to do instead. For what we're really all trying to do is remain what we call ourselves. (laughs) To keep personal happiness is our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition and hoping, and in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. Because as he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. And if I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. Resound. Let's get to the third point. Jesus comes back from praying this prayer. And of course, when he comes back, 
his disciples are sleeping, but again, I love Luke's account. Do you know what it says? It says they're sleeping, but it says this little extra word. It says sleeping for sorrow. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection at this point. They're about to lose what they love. Their friend, their savior, their rabbi, their, 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 their leader. <laughs> and they're so overwhelmed with sorrow that they, they, they just fall asleep. And much could be said here. I'll just be honest with you. There could be a whole other sermon about watching and praying. The flesh is willing. I mean, sorry, the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Watch out for temptation. And to be honest with you, I preached that four years ago. Uh, and probably like that sermon from college that was very memorable. You probably all remember every line of it now. So we don't really need to go over that. But that's a whole other separate sermon. Uh, but for now, I just want us to pay attention to two things. There's a subtle difference, and it's easy to overlook in this. The first time Jesus comes to pray, he says this, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But when he comes back from the disciples, and they're sleeping, and he says, Stay awake, boys. And then he goes back to Gethsemane. He prays it this way. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That's not just a different way of saying the same thing. That's different. And I want to be clear what that difference is not. That's not that Jesus was thinking all along, wait a second, what if there's a, something underneath this bush out there that we forgot about? A plan B that just... We never knew, but I'm just going to ask for it anyway. No. Every scholar I talked to, look, talked to, read this week, I talked to myself when I read scholars, so maybe that's why, but uh, all of them said Jesus knew it was always plan A. They, he never had in his mind there was a plan B. So what, what is this? Jesus, like you and I, when he prayed your will be done, you know what he had to do? You know what was happening in his heart? The same thing that happens to our hearts. A lot of times we know what God's will is, but we have to pray that prayer in order to come to terms with it emotionally. For example, when I was a new Christian, my freshman year I became a Christian, and I was dating somebody that I shouldn't have been dating. And, you know, I start getting involved with this ministry, and one of the leaders, great guy, uh, said, hey, that relationship right there, that's not God's will for your life. And he wasn't being subjective, like, hey, she's not a good girl. Like, he was taking me to Scripture saying, hey, you're a believer. She's an atheist. Like, here's a passage that says this isn't going to work. This isn't God's will for your life. I agreed with that. How could I dispute that? And you know what? I tried to do it. I tried to break up with her, and she threatened self-harm. So I was like, whoa, okay, I won't do that. And you know, I was stuck in this relationship. And I was stuck. And I didn't want to let it go. I mean, there was some unhealthy codependency going on there. And I just, all I could do for a year, I knew what God's will was the whole time. There wasn't a plan B. I mean, I was praying for her salvation, like be this great story, but I knew. And all I could do was your will be done, your will be done. You know, it was brutal. You know, she ended up cheating on me and ended up, falling in love with somebody else. So that was a, like, I felt like a dweeb for a while after all of that, okay? Like, it hurt. It hurt. Like, that hurt. Like, walking around knowing that happened, and thanks, God, you know? I, you know what's a more frightening thought? <laughs> what my life would have been. 
the pain I'd be in now, I don't think we'd even be in this room now. This would be still a furniture showroom. Point is, is all of us have to, at some point, we work this prayer into our lives to come to an alignment with his will. You know, Jesus, we're told, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. What a mystery. Being fully God and fully man, being our representative, Jesus has to do what we did do every day. Learn to come in alignment with his will. Jesus prayed your will be done and got the worst thing possible. The father did take his face away and the wrath was cup, poured out all the way to the drags on Jesus. Bottoms up. Now, how in the world did he do it? How did Jesus do it? I, the only way we could make sense of this is that Jesus Christ, even though he knew wrath from the Father was coming on him, never doubted his goodness. Jesus Christ knew what Mo God said, the Father said over Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He knew his heart. He knew his character. You know, one of the things that makes it so hard for us to pray your will be done is we don't trust his goodness. How many of us, when we think we pray this prayer, we fill in the gaps? Like, well, if I pray your will be done, I'll lose everything. I'll be like Job. I'll lose my job. Crazy things will happen just to teach me a lesson. Well, Jesus did pray that, and the worst thing happened to him, but he never doubted his goodness because he knew his plan. There's redemption and rescue. Jesus prayed your will be done and experienced the thing he was most afraid to lose. Jesus prayed your will be done and the worst thing that ever happened to anyone happened to him. And it was only in the certainty of his goodness of his father and his love that Jesus could pray your will be done, come what may. The writer of Hebrews says elsewhere, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we pray your will be done, that's what we learn. We are taken into the throne room where we experience the goodness of the Father. I experienced the goodness of the Father so much after praying your will be done and it hurt like heck and I felt like a dweeb. And I'm so thankful that his will was done. I'm doing a little better, a lot better, a million times better over here, okay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the sure promises of the gospel that he will never leave us or forsake us by praying your will be done. What that does to us is it builds up our spiritual muscles to go back like Jesus a second time, a third time, fourth time, a fifth time, and over and over. Praying your will be done is not a one and done thing. You just don't pray it like, well, I'm good now. Until we take our final breath on earth, we must pray this prayer. Because one day, this kingdom will come. His will will be done fully, forever, on earth as it is in heaven. And he is preparing us for that today. Elizabeth Alley, I'll close with this. Put it this way. I realized 
that the deepest spiritual lessons are not learned by letting us have our way in the end, but by his making us wait, bearing with us in love and patience until we are able to honestly to pray what he disciples to pray, thy will be done. Lord, I know there are hundreds of people, a couple hundred people in this room, and like me, every single one of us, not one person in this room is not facing something they are very timid to pray your will be done about. I ask for your help that they would not do it alone. It is not a job for the lonely. I ask for your supernatural help. Lord, you, you were given an angel. <laughs> I pray for supernatural help for all of us here to pray this prayer. And Lord, I pray that by praying your will be done, that we wouldn't just come more in line with your will, but your goodness. And I ask that, Lord, um, with the certainty of knowing we will never have to drink that cup, but instead, you've blessed us to drink from another cup of blessing, of your fellowship celebration. It's in your name we pray. Amen.